There are so many ways to learn to code and so many things to know. Today, we'll give our perspectives on different paths you can take. Whether you're looking for your first dev job or you're looking to advance your web development knowledge, we'll be covering a ton of different options for you. Make sure you check the show notes for important resources and a PDF version of our developer map. Also, we have officially reached the end of season two. We'll be taking the rest of April off, but we'll be back in your favorite podcasting app starting May 4th. Let's dig in. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma, and we're debugging the tech industry. Are you a developer looking for your next challenge? Meet Shopify. They're on a mission to make commerce better for everyone, and they do things a bit differently. They don't tell you how to solve problems. They give you the tools, trust, and autonomy to build new solutions. They don't want you to work alone. They're structured so you can leverage the diverse perspectives across teams in everything you do. And they don't pretend to have all the answers. They're big enough for you to tackle problems at scale, but small enough for you to discover and solve new problems. If you're a builder at heart who wants to solve highly technical problems, if you want to take all of your life experiences and apply them to a blank canvas, or if you want to access really powerful tools, Shopify is the place for you. Visit shopify.com careers today. So starting off, to kick off the discussion, I kind of want to put a disclaimer on this whole episode that this is a trick title, and there's no one singular way to learn to code or no one singular set of skills in order to advance or become a developer or get your first job. Every single one of us had a different skill set before getting our first job. So let's go ahead and do a quick rapid-fire round of what we new going into our first developer jobs. Kelly, you want to go first? Yes, I knew nothing. Um, So I've never actually had like a proper developer job, except for the one that I created for myself. Um, All of my life has been freelancing. So um, I started learning how to code when I was 11. I focused solely on the front end. Um, So I was doing HTML and CSS and frame sets. Super fun. Um, JavaScript scared the crap out of me. I tried to stay away from it as far as I could. Um, I continued to figure out more, like learn more and more, but I was really focusing just on freelancing. I I always said that I didn't want to make it my full-time job because I would grow to hate it if I was forced to do it. (laughs) Ha ha, jokes on me. Um, and I think the only time I ever really, really did any development work in like a professional environment outside of the, um, the, the short stint I had at the University of West Georgia in their college of education department was at CDC when they needed somebody who had their master's in public health who could also code. So I was the lone wolf applicant for that one. And obviously I got the position. Um, but yeah, so basically all that to say, I didn't really know much. I didn't know so much about um, what it was like to work in a professional environment. And so I just jumped right in. Um, But yeah, I focus solely on front-end HTML, CSS, and now I know JavaScript. Well, Emma? I studied mostly back-end in school, so I came out knowing mostly Java, MySQL, MIPS, and that's about it. Um, I took one web dev class once I found out I was switching to front-end all of a sudden, and so I learned HTML, CSS, JavaScript, Bootstrap, PHP, and I think that was it. But it was like a week on each of them, and we spent half the time watching bad lip reading videos. So I didn't learn as much as I should have. So by the time I got to my full-time job, I was utterly overwhelmed and I actually had to spend an absurd amount of time learning. 
Uh, and I was actually pretty certain I wasn't going to make it. So it took me, it took me about a year and a half to two years to actually really get into web development and learn a modern framework in library. So the first real framework I learned was Vue, although I was working with Dojo and that was an absolute nightmare, especially when you don't really know what you're doing. So that was kind of what I knew going into my first job. How about you, Allie? Depends on what you count as my first developer job. So I was a teaching assistant for my school's computer science department. It's my first job. And I took that position immediately after taking my first ever programming class, which was in Python. So I knew of the Python fundamentals, and that's absolutely it. And then I learned C++ the following semester. And then after that, ended up accidentally getting my first software engineering job. And so I knew C++ and Python and not a huge amount of depth to either. I think I did Code Academy's HTML and CSS lessons. So I had those on my resume too, but I hadn't really done anything with them. Um, and in fact, I mostly just used Bootstrap for the first couple years of my career. Um, but I learned almost entirely on the job and I feel really lucky to have had that investment in myself that I didn't know a ton going into that first job. But I was able to grow and learn so much super fast. So they're really lucky to have that. I realized that I cut out about six to eight years of my life story when I was talking through mine. Um, I did a lot of WordPress development, a lot of WordPress development. So I spent a lot of time in PHP and trying to understand my SQL. And it was very different or very difficult kind of just like jumping right into it. It did not make any sense to me. I am not a back-end developer. Even now, like I try and I I can like understand sort of what the code is supposed to be doing. But if you ask me to write the next section, can't do it. It happens. Um, We did an amazing or one of my favorite episodes that we've done really early on about different paths that you can take to learn to code. So whether that be boot camps or self-directed learning or uh, computer science and our paths in more depth as well. So if you're interested, go ahead and listen to that episode because it'll give you a lot more basis for what path that you should take. Um, This episode will be more like what are the tangible skills that you should know and what specialization to go into from there rather than what different paths you can take more generally. Cool. So let's talk about T-shape knowledge. And I know we've touched on it in previous episodes as well, but Ali, do you want to explain again what that is? There's always this question of whether you should have a lot of shallow knowledge about different things or you should have deep knowledge on one thing. And I think that the answer is actually somewhere in between for most people. There are specialists who just know really deep knowledge about one thing and there are people who are more broad and go into consulting roles where they know a little bit about a lot. But I think the perfect happy medium is T-shaping your knowledge, especially if you're looking for your first job. So you know some things in shallow depth, but then you have your specialization where you focus really deep on one thing. So whether that be React or Vue or Python or the front-end fundamentals or something along those lines, you have your one space of specialization and that's where you're really looking hard for jobs. But then you also have have shallow knowledge in okay, I know how to build a basic server and can spin that up, or I even know how the web works, or I 
can write a hello world in these different things. So I think having T-shaped knowledge, this is something that Emma talked about a lot as well, is the best way to go, especially at first. Definitely. And we talked on our last episode about learning how to learn. So we discussed different learning styles and the fact that your preferred learning style might not be the most effective learning style for you. So if you haven't listened to that, we'll link it in the show notes. It's definitely an important resource to learn. I think it's actually more effective if you understand the most effective learning style for you before you actually jump into learning things because you're going to make the most out of everything that you're consuming. So that's just a little precursor, but I think let's just jump right into the front-end side of things and let's talk about HTML. Now, HTML does not get as much notoriety as JavaScript in the front-end development world in terms of how difficult it is to learn and whatever. I mean, it isn't as difficult to learn as JavaScript, I will say that. However, don't take that for granted. It's still something you need to learn, especially if you're doing front-end technical interviews, which we have several different episodes on from the season as well. But learning how semantic HTML works is going to be very important to your growth as a web developer because everything we do in the DOM, we're going to be touching with our JavaScript code. So one of the biggest things with semantic HTML is going to be accessibility. So basically, we have semantic HTML elements. This is going to be like main, body, navigation. And why are these important to use is because we have users who are navigating our web pages with the help of assistive technology or screen readers. And these semantic HTML elements give them a way to easily navigate around our pages. If we're using non-semantic elements like div and span to code our entire site, someone who's visually impaired using these tools is not going to understand how to navigate our website and actually probably can't use half of it. Um, This can lead to lawsuits, but it's also not very nice. Like it's not ethical to actually cut out a portion of your potential users. So everyone needs to be able to use your applications. Now, that being said, there are some instances when you want to create a custom dropdown, for example, where you can't use the native HTML element. And sometimes HTML doesn't provide the elements you need. And that's where you're going to use div and span. But we still need to add this additional capability in called Way Aria. It's uh, written by the Web Accessibility Initiative and um, it ARIA stands for Accessible Rich Internet Applications, I believe. And essentially, they're just a series of HTML attributes and values that you add to your HTML elements to make them accessible. So if I have uh, a dropdown that is created with a div, I can set role equal dropdown or something of the sort uh, and some additional properties just to tell assistive technology what this is, what it controls, what does it do, etc. So this is very, very important when we're coding HTML and We need to do, I think, another deep dive into web accessibility because it's so massive. I could go on forever about it, but it's something you should definitely not take for granted. So that's, in my opinion, foundational semantic HTML is step one to understanding the web. And if supporting the, you know, screen readers and everything when when you're coding isn't enough of an incentive to focus on this... There are a lot of lawsuits around websites not being accessible. And I mean, there are, there are some big names getting sued because of it. Like, I think Beyonce was one of them. Um, I see it a lot in the e-commerce world. And there are companies just like, they literally exist just to go after websites that aren't accessible. Um, it's something that's really, really, really worth your time. One other thing to note about HTML is understanding the DOM tree at its basic root <laughs> lol um, <laughs> basically the fact that you know your documents are tree structures and understanding how to navigate that so that we can actually manipulate and dynamically generate 
DOM content or HTML content with our JavaScript. So those are kind of the two big areas you're going to want to be familiar with. And I think from there, it's safe to say we have the structure of our web page. And at that point, we can go and add some styling to it. So let's shift gears and talk about CSS. Kelly, do you want to take this one? Yeah. So instead of going into a super deep dive here, we have two episodes on CSS that we will link to in our show notes that are that go much more in depth. So just kind of running through um, the types of things that you're going to want to look at. And again, listen to the previous episodes to get a little bit more understanding about what it is that we're talking about. Um, but first off is going to be specificity as as far as the uh, the order of uh, the styling. I'm trying to figure out how the, the best way to explain specificity. Specificity are the mathematical calculations or the set of rules that determine how styles are applied to your DOM element. So the most specific wins. See, why don't you just explain all these things? Okay. I, to be fair, I'm really good at HTML and CSS, and then my JavaScript is mediocre best. So, <laughs> I think that that's an important conversation for us to have, too, is that even among us, we all have different specializations, and all of us can write HTML and CSS and JavaScript, but some of us have our T's shaped a little bit differently. Like for me, I would rather write JavaScript any day of the week. And then Emma just said she is kind of an HTML and CSS expert. So even if you're listening to this, like don't compare yourself to us. And we still fit under the specializations and have different skills. With um, And there's also the fact that I've been writing HTML and CSS for 18 years now. 19 years now, and I still struggle to explain the concepts. That's the majority of my life. Exactly. It's, it is over. T- I've been coding yeah. for over two-thirds of my life. Kelly, Kelly's 47. Oh. I don't think we've ever publicly okay. said <laughs> I, I just I had several birthdays this week, I guess. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's what March has done to all of us. <laughs> I like to say that maybe I'm a CS expert. CS Careful. Sex. I tried to make that thing. It didn't work. Stop trying to make fetch happen. Yeah, I don't know. This feels a little dirty. Oh, <laughs> I wasn't thinking like that, but thank you. Anyway, um, <laughs> just a couple of other areas of CSS you're going to want to be familiar with, quite familiar with, especially in a front-end interview, are inline versus block elements. This is going to be very important. It determines how things are rendered on our web pages. The box model, Kelly has a beautiful Twitter photo of her sitting in a box explaining the box model, but this is essentially you've got your element content, your padding, your border, and then your margin. Responsive design is another important area. This deals with media queries, flexbox and grid animations, specifically keyframes. You're also going to want to learn about positioning, so absolute, fixed, relative. I can't remember if there's another one. Sticky. Stick. Uh, I that? don't. I just like uh, the word. <laughs> isn't that the same no, as fixed? It's not. Anyway, uh, I have no idea. No, it's for mostly like nav bars. It's like yeah, interesting, but I think fixed would probably do the same. It's it's not exactly the same as. Also, I don't think the support is the same for it uh, across browsers. That's all right. And then um, just a couple other things are display. Um, so display inline block display. This goes back to inline versus block elements. And then lastly, mobile first. So understanding how to develop a website for mobile first. And then as we enlarge our browser, what breaks and what do we need to uh, shift around? So those are just a couple of basic CSS. Then we have a couple of different libraries you might want to be familiar with, at least from a conceptual perspective. So these are things like preprocessors. So we're talking about SAS or uh, what's the other one? Less is another preprocessor. Is less still used? I'm sorry. I think, I mean, it's probably used in some applications. But I, if you're going to learn a preprocessor, yeah. I'd say SAS. Um, that being said, CSS and JS, we should do a whole episode about. But those types of 
paradigms are becoming much more popular than SaaS. Uh, just at a high level, why? Um, preprocessors are really, really great for additional functionality, like mixins, which are just functions that return bits of code based on parameters, um, you, you know, variables, nesting, things like that. But um, they did help kind of solve the scope leaking problem of your styles uh, that CSS just innately does not have scope styling. But CSS and JS is the newer uh, paradigm for for web dev that I'm personally on board with, but it's kind of removing focus from preprocessors. So just be aware of that. Um, and then lastly, just some, uh, what are these called? UI libraries. So Bootstrap, Zurb Foundation, Houdini, Shocker UI, Tailwind CSS. Um, those kinds of UI frameworks are incredible for quickly building out UIs, especially if you're not good at design. But also take a look at design systems because Material UIs from Google is really good. Carbon Design uh, System is also really good. Those are just some things in terms of styling that will definitely help you become a great web developer. Yeah. And I think that these things have kind of escalated as well as we've gone through them is that pretty much any web developer should know the difference between inline and block and the box model, If especially if you are somebody who is writing CSS on a daily basis. But then if we're getting into something like Houdini, that's like kind of expert level CSS and at the edge of what you should know. As, and I would say the same is true with more complex animations is that those are the expert level type things, whereas some things like mobile first is something that you will 100% use and is more of a fundamental. So these are all really, really important skills, but you don't need to know everything. That's something we talk a lot about on here. Uh, you can always learn some things in the future, but this is a really great list of things in general to learn. Also, this is just a lot. There are so many freaking tools out there and technologies. And if you were to try to understand conceptually, like for me, when I was starting, it was really hard to understand what's gulp, what's grunt. They're the same kind of thing. Why would I use one or the other? Um, this is all very, very confusing. And so don't get frustrated. Ask questions to your team if you have that ability um, or ask online on Twitter. You're welcome to also message us if you have questions about like, what's ESLint? I don't understand. Um, we're happy to help. So with that, I think it's time to talk about JavaScript. I'm going to pass this over to Ellie. Do you want to walk through the fundamentals of what's what's good to learn? Yeah, for sure. So I think the first fundamentals to learn in JavaScript are the fundamentals of programming. So what is the function? What is the loop? What is the variable? What is scope? Those basic fundamentals of programming that will be the same within JavaScript and Python and C++ and really anything that you go further in um, outside of JavaScript, learning those fundamentals first is probably the, the first piece of JavaScript. And then from there, we go into the front-end specific world of JavaScript of DOM manipulation and event listeners and the event loop and all of that. So how does the browser listen for user interaction and how does it respond to that? And how can we make it so that our user interfaces are interactive using JavaScript? So I would say that that's the first tier of JavaScript. So if you want just to dip your toes in the water, that's what I would learn. But then if you want to become more of a JavaScript uh specialist, then it becomes more important to learn what's going on under the hood. So things like the prototype chain and inheritance and then uh, event delegation and bubbling and the how the event loop really works underneath the hood and 
more advanced scope things, closures, functional programming, different paradigms, object-oriented programming, all of that can fit under this JavaScript hood if you are looking to go more in-depth, especially if you're looking to level up. And then once you move past those fundamentals of the things that are built into the JavaScript language itself, we can go a little bit further and learn about things like frameworks and libraries. So React, Vue, Angular, we did a whole episode on these and their pros and cons and why you would use one or the other. Um, I think if you are learning, looking to learn just one, I would go for React or Vue at this point in web development history. I think React has the most jobs. And so learning that if you are looking for your first job would be a great strategy. On the other hand, Vue, in my opinion, is the simplest to learn. So if you're looking for something with a more flat learning curve, then Vue could be the way to go there. So I would focus on learning one of those frameworks or libraries in depth if you are looking to learn or just to get started because there's a ton of overlap. The idea of a component-based hierarchy and state management and passing data from component to component, that's a theme from each one of these languages or each one of these frameworks and libraries to the other. So you don't need to know everything. You don't need to know all of them. I would focus on one. And next season, we're going to be doing a bit of a deeper dive into JavaScript as well, um, talking about things like functional programming and doing it a whole episode on intermediate JavaScript as well, um, which I'm really excited because I don't know any of these things. I'm really excited for that, too. There are things that you definitely 110% need to know if you're going to a front-end technical interview. They might even ask you to find some of these terms, which I don't necessarily agree with, but you might be asked and you might have to answer. So I'm excited for the episode, too. I think one of the most valuable things that I have learned and I'm still really learning how to do better is debugging for JavaScript. Um, it's uh, whether you're, you know, just using like the debugger, like built into um, dev tools or however, you know, makes the most sense based on whatever it is that you're building. I, th- I find that understanding how debugging works really passes on to whatever it is that you're, you're building with JavaScript. I learned so much from our debugging episode, just me personally. We had an amazing guest for that. So definitely go listen for sure. And there are just maybe a couple other areas if you want to learn more about JavaScript and you've kind of run through the fundamentals. And those are going to be SPAs and PWAs, which stand for single page applications and progressive web applications. I'm not 100% sure how to define a single page application. I was asked this the other day and I'm like, ah, there's one page I don't know. Uh, and then, but I think progressive web apps are web pages that allow you to actually save it to your home screen on a mobile device, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if there are other benefits as well, maybe like um, service workers. It's super hyper fast because basically it gets cached on load. And so it doesn't have to keep on loading all the content on the page if nothing is actually changed. Um I'm I'm really yeah. big on on progressive web apps. I wish I had had more opportunity to to build with them. Um, our uh, you'll see a lot of that with with React and Vue um, building out like frameworks that are progressive web apps. Also, definitely static site generators. I forgot about this. Um, these are going to be really great too. These are things like Gatsby, Next, Nuxt. I don't know which is for Vue and which is for React. I always mess that up. Um, Jekyll. These are basically like Gatsby in particular. We actually 
that would be a fun episode to, to talk about static site generators. But um, basically, you get to write a React application, and then it compiles down to just HTML and CSS files that you can then host on GitHub for free or things like that, or deploy to Netlify. But they rehydrate back into a React application in the UI. So they're really, really performant, great for accessibility and things like that. Uh, and speaking of fast performance, that's one other area that you're going to want to be aware of for JavaScript. We do have, we did a performance episode, didn't we? Web performance. Yeah, pretty much the TLDR is to yes. <laughs> use Lighthouse testing um, as a first Lighthouse, step. Well, that being said, though, too, just as a, a preface there is Lighthouse is actually a little bit inconsistent. I don't know if it's inconsistent for performance as well, but accessibility wise, it's very not uh, very inconsistent with results, which I didn't know. Um, so just be aware of that. If you rerun it, the same test on the same page multiple times, you might get different res- results. Oh, interesting. I haven't seen that, but I think it's important to say that it is a first step. But if you are just like a total beginner to performance, it gives you step-by-step instructions on how to fix performance issues on your site and how to make it into your progressive web app. And so as far as beginner-friendly tools go, I think that it's awesome. Mm -hmm. So now let's jump into the back end. And I'm, again, going to pass this over to Allie because she is our back end queen. Yeah, so... As far as backend goes, I like to advise that new developers and people just starting out at least have an understanding of how the backend works. So maybe just be able to spin up an express server or something along those lines, connect it to a database. It doesn't have to be crazy in depth. You don't have to be an expert by any means, but just understanding how a front end connects to a back end or to an API or how you build a simple API, it goes a long way and it makes it so that you can communicate well with other developers. And I think that's the same thing is true for all of these skills. So if even if you're not writing HTML every day, the ability to discuss with the HTML developer what's going on and to understand from their perspective what they do, that goes a long way. And so I think the same thing is true as even if you're a front-end developer, having a very, very rudimentary knowledge of the back-end goes a long way. And the same thing is true for back-end developers, having a rudimentary knowledge of the front-end and what HTML, CSS, JavaScript are and what they do, and you can build like a simple web page. That's really important. So for the back-end, you can just use JavaScript if you don't want to learn another programming language if you're coming from the front-end. But I think this is another chance to pick up a secondary programming language. And the reason that I like to advise a second programming language is because learning one once you know one already is such a shallow learning curve. And you already know the fundamentals of loops and arrays and conditionals and functions and all those things. And so you're just looking at that in a different syntax. And so it can help reinforce those fundamentals, but it can also make it so that you have the confidence to apply to a job that is outside of the primary language that you've been working in. So languages that I recommend to early career developers would be Python, Node, which we've been talking about for JavaScript, um, Ruby, and then PHP to some extent as well. Um, So with Python, you could also learn Django, which is an amazing web framework built into it. Uh, Node, you could learn something like Express to build 
web apps with that. Um, and then Ruby has the amazing Rails community, and that would be the way to go if you learn Ruby. I'm less knowledgeable about the PHP community, but there are lots of other frameworks out there like uh, Laravel, WordPress, Drupal. You could probably keep going for a long time there. There, are, yeah, there are, are a bunch of them that I, I, I think we mentioned it or I added it to the list because um, WordPress is still very much around, and there are plenty of people still building on the platform. Um, and so PHP can be can be worth running or worth learning. Um, we're still building some of our apps in PHP. I'm running Shopify scripts with PHP as well. Yeah, a huge percentage of the web is built on PHP. My only guidance would be to look up pay categories for the different things that you're learning. Um, Just in my experience, and I don't know if this is actually universal or just the studies that I've lived in, is that PHP jobs tend to pay less than the other jobs that we've been talking about in this episode. And so that's just something to to note. Um, I'm not sure if that's even universally true. It's just something that I've noticed with the cities that I've lived in. While we're on the back end, there are other pieces to this as well of deployment and DevOps, so building out systems so that uh, your application is going to be consistent for end users and has a testing framework built in so that you're writing these automated tests um, and making sure that broken code isn't going into production. In addition, there's database management, so using SQL or NoSQL database and understanding how data is stored in there and also retrieved from that database, so things like queries. I think SQL is the most widely used, and so that would be the direction that I would go in. Postgres is my favorite open source and really accessible, so I'd really recommend learning a database and basic SQL. It's kind of like HTML where it won't take you years and years to learn a couple SQL queries. There are actually a lot of people outside of the developer community who know SQL. Like, that's that's what they learn. Um, and I know it's used in a yeah. lot of, like, uh, research studies um, for running, like, for analyzing your your study data. Um, it's used in like standard, standard businesses. I I think it's, I think it's super cool when I hear just people who are completely like non-technical careers talk about everything that they know is SQL. I'm just like, this is awesome. Yeah. And business analysts, they tend to use a lot of SQL as well. I dated a business guy for a while and he knew SQL and that was his form of programming. He talked about it all the time to impress me. I think my husband knows some SQL. He also knows PowerShell, which yeah. is something I know nothing about. Same, same. Um, so what is what is routing? Routing is how URLs work, and so how what happens when you go to a certain URL, and what is retrieved, what's the code that runs, and then you're also writing routes, so URLs that make sense and follow certain patterns. Um, that's kind of what routing is, and. That kind of fits into how the web works. Like, in general, you should know how the web works. So HTTP versus HTTPS. Um, Perhaps you want to know about TCP, IP. Oh, my God, all of these different acronyms. Um, So you definitely want to know how that works, especially, like I said, again, if you're going to be going to a web developer technical interview, they're going to be asking you some of these things. 
So I think that's an important thing point to make. If you're, let's say I'm, I'm applying for a position that I am purely going to be working on the front end. Well, should I be expected to be asked these questions like on things like routing and databases still? Um, not databases, but you might be asked questions like I have been asked multiple times. Like if you enter google.com in your URL um, or like in your browser and hit enter, what happens? And you have to walk through the whole process of how pages are requested. What happens if your request fails? Um, all about uh, packets and how like TCPIP um, you know, splits your data into packets, but also make sure that they all arrive, things like that. But there are plenty of YouTube videos that actually help make this digestible for people. So I would definitely recommend checking out YouTube to help explain some of those concepts. Cool. So now let's shift into testing because I think testing is becoming more and more popular. Um, I, I feel like having been in the front-end world for quite some time, it was, it was only until recently, I heard people like really talking about testing. It can't be a new concept. So what is your experience with with testing? Um, I also quickly before I answer, I just want to say you're not going to be you should not be asked questions about testing or any of the other topics we're going to cover up until, you know, the end where we talk about data structures and algorithms. The next several topics are just for your personal learning and your work on an actual team building a product. So um, test we're going to talk testing, tooling, dev tools, uh, and Git, potentially even the terminal next. And so those topics you're not going to be quizzed on in a technical interview. So anything you can write code for or has to do with like day-to-day programming uh, in terms of performance, accessibility, those things you'll be asked. You won't be asked about testing. You should not be. Um, I have been. Really? I've I've done a shit ton of interviews and I've never once been asked about it. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. I think testing might be more eponymous in the back-end world, so more widely used and more um, expected. So That's a good point. And the different teams that... Were you asked? Were you asked to write testing code though? No, just when would you write a test? Well, that's the yeah. thing. Yeah. So conceptually, you might be asked questions about like, are you even familiar that any libraries exist? If so, like, what have you worked with? But they won't ask you to physically write these tests. Maybe I should have clarified that. You won't be expected to write tests in a technical interview. Yeah, and we talked about this though in our code challenge episode that if you write tests for your code challenge, that looks really, really good and is something that I look for when I grade them. So testing is writing code that tests your other code. So you're making sure that when you write new code, you're not breaking your old code, essentially. That everything is doing exactly what you want it to do. On the front-end world, there are a ton of different libraries for this. So Mocha Chai, Jest, Enzyme, uh, Cypress snapshot testing, integration testing. Uh, we can keep going on and on and on with these different types of testing and the different libraries that are out there for this. But I think the idea of being able to write a unit test and to explain what it is is really important. I know when I worked for Dev, we had to have 99% test coverage or something along those lines for our whole entire code base. So if you were to get your uh, pull request merged, it needed to have tests on it that we're fully testing your code. So it is something that you will most likely see at work and something that I really impress upon my students that it's it's an important thing to do and learn. I, we did a whole episode on testing with Angie Jones. And so we didn't? No, we did a lesson. We did. 
uh, an episode on teaching with her. Oh, we did teaching. Okay, well, anyway, she's really invested in um, testing. She does test automation university. So go check that out as well. But just to clarify, we actually are, we're doing an episode of t- on testing for season oh, nice. three. Okay, that's good to know. Um, just at a very high level, though, like snapshot testing kind of like takes a snapshot of your UI and checks whether anything has changed visually. So has my button background changed from blue to red? If so, it'll throw an error. Um Integration testing kind of makes sure that your new feature actually integrates with everything that already exists, I believe. And then end-to-end testing, I think, actually tests user flows. But that being said, there are cases when you're not going to want to test certain things. Like if your test is very, very simplistic, it's actually more overhead, I think. We'll talk about that more next season in our testing episode, but just things to be aware of. So um a couple people in the industry to check out. So Andy Jones is a big one. Uh, Kent Dodds does a lot. Kent C. Dodds does a lot of work with testing as well. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else off the top of my head who does a lot of testing. Okay, but I still have a question about this. Because like I said, like I, I don't remember people talking about testing like a few years ago. No, never. It's okay. been very recent. Is it just because these these libraries or these tools to, to test only recently came about? Because people have been writing tests for the back end for a long time. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's becoming more of a thing on the front end as front ends become more complex. Like, with front end development has been revolutionized pretty recently with the rise of, like, JavaScript frameworks and it looks wildly different than it did even when I started my career in the front end. Like it was mostly just you added a little bit of jQuery to make things interactive. And now it's like your whole entire user interface is built in JavaScript. And so I think as that has come about, testing has come about okay. as well, would be my guess. Is that it correlates with the rise in JavaScript use? All right. Let's go into tooling now. So I think we all have some of our, our favorite tools that we use. And when we talked about our, what was the episode called for like What's all of our, our setups? computer setup? Or Literally, our computer yes. setups. I think I, I yeah, realized as soon as I said it, I know exactly what it is. Um, so we did kind of cover some of these, uh, these tools that we find to be uh, really useful, like Prettier, um, ESLint, Emmet, um, Understanding, NPM, uh, and Yarn, and do you have a preference on NPM versus Yarn? I don't know what the differences are, in all honesty. So I just use whichever one I kind of feel like, which I think <laughs> is very bad practice. So I should probably yeah. learn. Now I think that they're the same. Yarn came about because NPM was single threading everything. So all of the packages would install one after the other. And Yarn would parallelize them, I think, so that they would install at the same time. And then NPM started doing the same thing. So at this point, Yarn and NPM are pretty similar at least in my understanding. But agreed, I use whatever the project is using and usually NPM by default if I'm starting something myself. And now a GitHub or NPM joined GitHub, right? Yeah, yeah, like required. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So I, I use both. Um, understanding, you know, package managers and your node modules folder and how the jokes around why, it, it, why they're so weighty and making sure you're not... Uh, pushing those to your GitHub repos and things like that. Um, Webpack and Gulp and Grunt. I still have projects that use Gulp and Grunt. And do you do you guys use these? Do you two use these? Yeah, I yeah. used to. So I think. Hold on. Let's pause and let's give a quick uh, like overview of very high level overview of what some of these things are because it's very confusing if you don't know. So prettier is a tool that's used to format your code and make it 
look prettier. Um, this is like aligning all of your indentations to be correct. ESLint is uh, created by Airbnb and it's essentially a set of rules to govern how you write your code. Um, this can be done on your like within your IDE, but also at a project level. So this is, do I want to use tabs or spaces? Or do I want to use uh, single quotes or double quotes? Things like that. It was built by Airbnb. I think so, yeah. That's cool. Um, Emmet is a tool that comes integrated with VS Code, if I'm not mistaken. And you can use the shorthand, uh, like you can use shorthand essentially to write out, scaffold a bunch of really complex HTML very easily. And it can expand beyond beyond html as well uh, yeah i can use like css i haven't used it for anything above html but yeah Kelly's you can right. write your own your own little scripts to if you're if you're typing Definitely. the same things over over and over again like you could do this to create react functional error yeah components, for example um and so we, we touched on npm and yarn they're just package managers so any package that someone creates so react for example is a package that you would want to install in your code. Webpack is a very complex tool that's a little bit confusing to learn, but it kind of does everything. It, for me, it replaced Gulp and Grunt. Gulp and Grunt are task managers. And so that a task might be to transpile your code from ES6 down to ES5 for certain browsers or to minify your code and strip out all the excess spacing and indentation. Um, Webpack kind of replaced it and it did a lot of other things. So if you're using Create React app, it comes built in with Webpack, for example. You don't even have to configure it. But I don't know enough about Webpack to actually talk about it I don't it either, much. but I think it's worth saying while Webpack may have replaced it, Gulp and Grunt are still very much around. They're still being actively used in projects. Definitely. I will also say that there are a lot of tools now for generating these things for you. Some something like Create React App, which under the hood is using Webpack, or something like Gatsby, which does all of the configuration for you. Whereas back in the day, like early React, you had to write all of this yourself, and it was gnarly. It, to me, it was the most difficult part by far of learning React. And that's exactly why I delayed learning React. <laughs> yeah, it was gnarly. But it, we have tools now. It's a lot easier now. So jumping into de uh, developer tools now, um, two things to look at here. First off, the text editor, the IDE that you're using. Um, you know, whether you're using Sublime Text or Atom or VS Code, they all do... They, they, I mean, they all have the same end goal, but they all have their own unique little intricacies. It's, it really comes down to personal preference, which you like using best. Um, so there's no right or wrong answer here, um, except for Emma. She really likes using just like text edit to code still. Um, I do. I, well, no, that's not true. I actually mostly code in Vim um, or just like on a circuit board directly. So <laughs> I like Microsoft Word. <laughs> Said no I got <laughs> in any context. <laughs> I got into that during whiteboarding interviews when they made me write my code in my Google Docs. I just stuck to it. I knew that. it. I think it's really powerful because then you know you you finish writing out your your code in Microsoft Word, and then you go print off the paper, and then you just like glue it to your monitor. And then you have a website. Punch cards. That's great. Oh, punch <laughs> That's cards. That's what those are, Yes, right? exactly. So outside of the text editors, then you have the developer tools that are built into your browser. So whether you're using Safari, Firefox, Chrome, their their dev tools um, are built right into the browser. You left out Opera, Kelly. I Opera also and left off Brave. Um, oh, I don't even know what that is. Oh, go go ahead and ask <laughs> on, on Twitter. Say, say, what is Brave? And listen, <laughs> like there is a 
community around people who use this particular browser who are so like such diehard fans about it. I don't completely understand it. I know it's really big on privacy. There's something with like, you can serve me ads, but then I get Bitcoin in return or something like that. I don't, it's it's a thing. Um, I ain't going to touch that with a 10 foot pole. (laughs) That's a good plan. Um, But understanding how to use the developer tools that are built into whichever browser you're using or multiple browsers that you're using. Um, Especially when you're doing things like view and react, there are extensions you can add to Chrome, for example, to be able to like click through each of the components. And it's super handy. Awkward silence. Let's talk about Git. (laughs) Let's talk about Git. (laughs) No, Kelly's right. I didn't want to take like the spotlight away. She's totally right. I didn't know how to use the developer tools for like the first year of my career. Uh, So don't be like me. Learn from me. Drink water and learn the browser developer tools. Um, So Git is something really important you're going to need when you work on a team. Again, I've never been asked Git questions in an interview. Nothing about Git. I asked if you are like, do you have experience using Git? I don't, I don't, I don't oh, want you to I, know, like, what is your favorite commit message? Actually, I should start asking that. That's a pretty fun question. In all honesty, though, I feel like that's a given. Like, if you're working on, like, not, so I'm not talking GitHub. I'm talking yeah. Git, which is, like, the actual, like, language for how you would navigate your, like, your, uh, it's the actual source control method. And then GitHub and Bitbucket and, um, I don't know, with source tree. like, those are all IDEs not IDEs, I'm totally losing my words, but they're like the actual tools that you would use to integrate with Git. It's a little confusing. But yeah, I would say it's a given these days. Like if you work as a web developer, you're expected to know Git. I will say though, if you don't know Git, it can be pretty confusing trying to wrap your head around learning Git for the first time. It's so freaking confusing. The nice thing is there are a lot of really great online courses for you know, wrapping your head around Git and understanding, like, creating branches and, um, you know, how you're sh- you should be properly, um, you know, pushing up into into a repository and creating the pull requests. Things like Git Blame and Git Rebase, things like some of those topics, I'm still confused about them. Um, but there are a lot of really great courses online. I don't think we linked to any. So maybe we may or may not link to one of the show notes. Um, but yeah, uh, don't, panic if you start you like you're hearing a lot of people talk about like using git and you're like i really do not understand it you're in good company i still don't know how to use git and every time i screw it up i delete it i literally like, just I start over again <laughs> i'm not even joking like that's yeah i joke about it on twitter but i'm actually not kidding i i know i need to learn it it's just um there's a course on front end masters about git in depth and she actually talks about the sha codes that are generated for each commit message and like what it all means it's very interesting but yeah, you definitely need to know Git and kind of in line with that, knowing how to use your terminal is a big uh, a big thing that you should at least, I can do like basic commands. Like I can navigate my file structure um, and I can use Git in the terminal. Those are basically the only things I do in there. I don't touch Vim. I don't do anything else. So at least understand like what is a terminal? Why would I use it? How do I navigate basic file structures? And I think you should be pretty good on that end. Agreed. Agreed. I have my terminal, use it for a lot of things. But honestly, recently, I've been using uh, VS Code more for my file management stuff. It's got so many amazing tools for that. And for me, it's just easier to stay in one place rather than switch back over to my terminal. I agree. I I use Hyper for my terminal. And basically, I use it whenever I'm starting a new project to get cloned something and then open up VS Code. And then I close it. 
And then I go, just use the terminal that's built into VS Code. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that. So Emma, do you want to talk about uh, design patterns? Why? Because design's in the title, Kelly? Yes. Um, Yeah, sure. So basically, design patterns have nothing really to do with visual design. But essentially, they are cookie cutters for structuring your code. There are different design patterns. The builder pattern is one. And I think the basic premise of it is um, it talks about how you can create essentially rubber stamps for your code. You build a component, and every time you need it, you just stamp a specific um, component. Uh, I don't know enough about it to actually do it justice, but Adi Osmani, who works at Google Chrome, is a huge proponent of design patterns. He wrote a book. It's excellent. Go check it out. Um, you don't need to be experts in design patterns. I don't know anything about design patterns, and I'm doing just fine with my life. Um, but it is something if you want to level up your web developer skills or just your programming skills in general, because it's not web specific, I would definitely recommend checking out his book. With that, I think we've kind of touched all of the primary areas for web development, but I do think it's important we very quickly discuss data structures and algorithms because you're going to need to know these 100% for your interviews. And we did an episode on... Well, we did three episodes on the front-end interview process. Um, so go check those out. But one of those was around data structures and algorithms. And, oh, gosh, it's a lot. It's very heavy and it's overwhelming. But there are things that you absolutely need to know. I don't know anything about data structures and algorithms. Even after recording that episode, I won't lie. I It's, it's an area that's just complete magic to me. But um, outside of our own episode, uh, Kyle Shevlin also has an egghead course on data structures and algorithms that is worth checking out. Uh, We will link to that in our show notes. Okay, so we listed a ton of stuff in this episode where we've been talking a lot about, you know, front end, back end, testing, tooling, etc. So let's talk about leveling up past the basics because... You know, you can go through tutorials, you can go through courses, but how do you move past that? And I'd love to hear from Allie for this as our resident teacher. Yeah, I think the most important thing that you can do is learn by doing and building applied projects and different projects than you would from a tutorial. So if you're learning through to-do lists in a tutorial, build something totally different and apply your skills in a different format that's going to test you a lot more than just recreating something over and over again. Um, In addition, use tutorials to learn the fundamentals, but don't get stuck in a cycle of just doing tutorial after tutorial after tutorial and never going beyond that. Um, Especially if you are like self-taught, building something like a portfolio or having a blog is going to be really important to show off your skills. Or if you're a bootcamp grad as well, for the most part. Um, having something like a portfolio is going to be probably crucial for getting your first job. So building projects that you can feature on that portfolio is going to be important. And if you're not sure of what to build and you're looking into JavaScript, I really like uh, the JavaScript 30. Uh, I don't know. I guess it'd be maybe considered a course uh, from Westboss, uh, where basically it's a different JavaScript project every 30 or like for every day for 30 days um, using vanilla JavaScript. And you can kind of use this as a launching point for building something out on your own if you just need some ideas. Yeah, they're good little drills. Pretty quick, too. And I want to end this episode with a couple of disclaimers. So again, everybody's path is different. Everything is going to be 
it, it was different for all the three of us. We all knew different things before getting our first developer jobs. We all know very different things now and have very different specializations. So everybody's path is going to be different. So you don't need to know absolutely everything that we outlined in this episode. I think it's just good to have this basic roadmap of here are some things that I should maybe learn if I'm looking to get started. Um, along the same lines, you don't have to learn them all at once. Pace yourself and take some time. You know, there are those stories online. It's like, I learned how to code in a week and became a developer that makes $800,000 a year. And that's not the usual case. It usually takes a while to learn these things. Everybody's path is going to be so different. Um, Also, with everything going on in the world, I know that I made these disclaimers all through the last episode, but if you're not feeling it right now and you're not using this quarantine time to learn to code or anything like that, that is okay. That is actually super, super understandable. I understand it. I am in New York City where things are basically apocalyptic and it's tough to even get out of bed in the morning. I can link an article in the show notes of right now it's your job to survive. It's not, um, we're not in conditions right now where many people are thriving. So don't feel like you need to use this quarantine time that you have more time at home to teach yourself all of these things or anything like that. Do what feels best to you. And on that note, Let's jump into shout-outs. So I'm going to start with Emma first. What is your shout-out? You're starting with me because my shout-out is I know. For you. That's exactly why. <laughs> um, now, Kelly helped my mom set up a business. Uh, well, okay, hold on, wait. She mentored her for her birthday on setting up a business. My mom just retired from IBM after 30-some-odd years as a UX designer. So she's now starting her own business as uh, like a career coach or something. She works with John Maxwell uh, to some extent. But in any case, she's trying to set up her own LLC. And Kelly is the queen of LLCs. So I, for her birthday, purchased a session with Kelly. And so I just, that was my shout out. Thank you. People collect things like baseball cards and rocks. I collect LLCs. That's, that's, <laughs> that's my passion. Allie, what is your shout out? My shout out is to my dog, Blair, because I am, again, in New York City right now, have been under the weather um, and so completely self-isolating. And if I I live alone, so if I did not have my dog Blair, things would be really rough right now. But she's she's there for me. She keeps throwing tennis balls at me all day, keeps the mood light. So big shout out to Blair. That's cute. And Kelly. My shout out is to coffee. Um, I ran out of coffee last week and it was a really, really sad moment in my life. And so I bought some from a local roaster and then my uncle also mailed me a bag of coffee from Michigan. And somehow I went from having no coffee to having 11 pounds of coffee. (laughs) Um, but I'm really excited to be enjoying this, this coffee because I finally bought an AeroPress again and it is my favorite way to make coffee. So on that note, let's close out. So if you like this episode, tweet about it. Um, We have been sending a Smashing Magazine book to tweeters, but given the current state of things, um, we're not going to the post office. So either we will give you a Smashing Magazine or a book when we're venturing out into the world again, or we'll find something something else that's kind of fun. But either way, if you like this episode, please tweet about it. Uh, We also started a book club. So... We just last week, we released our third book club episode, which was on It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. 
Um, go listen to that if you haven't yet. Uh, May's book club book is Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. We are not doing one for April since we're taking a month off. Uh, but if you're interested in joining in, uh, you can learn more by going to ladybug.dev books. And as we are at the end of season two, we will be taking the remainder of April off to prepare for the next great season for you. We have a lot of really great content lined up for season three. Super excited. Uh, we cannot wait to share. So we'll be back on your favorite podcasting app on May 4th. Awesome. Farewell. Bye, everybody. It's a beautiful day to be alive.